up your Bibles. John, if you want to hit the light switch back there, my friend, thank you so much. Let there be light. Okay. I want to invite you tonight. I, I, uh, as a kid growing up, going to church was a clock watcher. <laughs> uh, a watch watcher. When I got my first watch, it was a little yellow Snoopy watch, and I would watch his little paws go around very, very, much more slowly when the pastor was preaching, you know. I want to invite you tonight to not look at watches or clocks, and that's not because I planned to go super long, um, but to soak in the Word of God. We're going to cover some ground, but we need to, as, and, and I think you'll see as we go forward, I want to look at the offerings tonight that Leviticus begins, chapter 1, right out of the gate, dealing with five offerings. And I want to dispute those who would say, you lost me at Leviticus. Because before we're out of the first chapter, we recognize he found us in the blood. You lost me at Leviticus, he found me in the blood. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. Five sacrifices, five offerings. I listed these out on Sunday. I'll list them for you again, and then we're going to look at them. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and finally, the guilt offering. Had a, a dear sister come up to me Sunday after teaching. Okay, it was Connie, but I wasn't going to say her name. And may I share what you said? It's too late. I'm already sharing, right? Uh, Connie said, you know, okay, she said, Rick, I didn't grow up in church, and I've never heard this stuff. And I said, Connie, I grew up in church, and I never heard this stuff. <laughs> and, and you're not going to hear this stuff unless you sit down and soak in the word of God. In other words, open up books like Leviticus and see what he has to say. Most Christians don't even know that there were five specific, unique, distinct offerings for the people of Israel. I didn't. Years ago, I grew up just thinking, you know, I'd hear offering, I'd hear sacrifice, and I knew they did animal sacrifices, and I knew there was blood. And like my other sister, Debbie, I, I concerned me a little bit because I like animals, you know, and it just seemed to be that, that kind of dark corner of, of the divine, that animal sacrifice, and why, Lord, and I, I, I just kind of, can we move through this quickly so we don't have to deal with it, and, and we'll, we'll miss it. As I said Sunday, Jewish children tend to start Leviticus. They begin their Bible study. They come to synagogue, and the first book open is Leviticus with a little drop of honey on the page, you know, for motivation. But Christians tend to avoid it like the plague. And so I'm so glad that your Bibles are open and that you're here tonight and that you're tuning in tonight if you are. But in so skipping books like Leviticus, what happens is we miss the heart of the one sacrifice. Because these five offerings are cameos of the Christ. That's what I'm calling this tonight as we study through cameos of the Christ. Each offering a portrait of Jesus. 
And that becomes very clear even with the very first cameo. Cameo number one, so that will be our outline is we're just going to take all five offerings and, and you can outline and follow through with each one. Cameo number one, the burnt offering. In Hebrew, the olah. The olah. And the burnt offering of Israel, the olah, speaks of devotion. The devotion of Christ the devotion of Jesus. Picking up in verse 3, if his offering is a burnt offering, an olah, from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. Okay, there's Jesus right there. Contrary to the fallacy of even evangelicals who think that Jesus, while on earth, what was it I told you Sunday, 42, 43% of evangelicals think that Jesus sinned? Wrong. He is a male without defect, perfect in his life, keeping the commandments exactingly, wonderfully. He is the male without defect. And so you bring this Olaf from the herd, a male without defect, he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, the Olaf, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. That's the bronze altar. And he shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the altar. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. The burnt offering. It is the oldest offering in the Bible. This one's first. This one's been around the longest. If not the oldest offering in all history, you can trail back to Genesis chapter 22. And God telling Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac, to the place that God would show him and to offer him there as a burnt offering, as an Allah. So Genesis 22, we see the burnt offering. There on Mount Moriah, and remember on Mount Moriah that Isaac wasn't offered. There was a picture of a father willing to offer a son, and yet in that place God provided a ram that was offered up in his place as a burnt offering. The whole ram went up in smoke. But you can go back further than that. Genesis chapter 8, we happen to know that Noah, following the flood, offered up a burnt offering to the Lord, and the soothing aroma reached the Lord, and he smelled it. He said, never again will I destroy the world with water as I have done. I know the heart of man, he says. I know it's messed up. I'm paraphrasing. But I'm never going to destroy the world this way again, not by water. And so the burnt offering was offered by Noah. Some even think, and we can't prove it, but you can go all the way back to Genesis 4, and Abel's offering to the Lord may very well have been an olah, a burnt offering. But notice, according to verse 9, that it's an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. If you've heard that phrase, the soothing aroma, that's interesting. It's another example of an anthropomorphic phrase. There's a, a humanized phrase to speak of the divine God. Remember, God is spirit. 
And so what is the idea behind this soothing aroma? The first time we hear that is in Noah's burnt offering when the aroma, the soothing aroma, reaches the Lord and he promises not to curse the ground on account of man. We're going to hear this phrase, a soothing aroma, 17 times in Leviticus. You will hear it in total in the Hebrew Scriptures 43 times. So it's significant. This is an important phrase, a soothing aroma. We'll hear it just two times in the New Testament. A soothing aroma. What is that exactly? In my room, on Cheryl's side of the room, we have a diffuser. Put a little essential oil in there. We have this essential oil, and what's it called? It, it, it's, uh, it's some kind of health and wellness essential oil, and I'm telling you. I asked Cheryl after like the third or fourth time that she had that thing letting off that sweet scent, I said, is there pot in that? And what's going on here? What am I, because it just is so relaxing, the smell was so, you know, energizing. Anyway, <laughs> there was no pot. We're good. No drugs of any kind. But what is this? You know, the Lord's getting the soothing aroma. There's a smell that soothes God? Kind of like music calms the savage beast? Hey, God is no beast. God is spirit, as I said. So we need to understand what is going on with this soothing aroma, this reach nichoach. It, it, it's a pleasing or a satisfying scent. So the word soothing there, some of your translations may even say a pleasing aroma, a satisfying aroma. It's a biblical way of explaining God taking in the offering. He sees the offering. He notes the offerer's heart. He breathes the offering, as it were, so to speak, and takes it in and then is therefore satisfied with the heart of the offerer, pleased with the one who brings the offering. So it's a vivid, picturesque way, because we smell an aroma, and it either pleases us or disgusts us, or it does something to us. You know how smells will do that. And so it's that beautiful picture of God. He takes it in, and he's satisfied. And one of the two New Testament references to the soothing aroma, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Remember what God said? Be holy, because I am holy. Paul says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus is the burnt offering. Jesus is the fragrant aroma. Jesus is the, the aroma, if you will, the fragrance that reaches the Lord and satisfies the wrath. Soothes the wrath of God against action, against you, against me, because Jesus is that fragrance. Jesus is our burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering, as we've talked about now several times, was completely consumed on the altar fire. And in being completely consumed, it speaks of a voluntary devotion. It was voluntary. You didn't have to bring the burnt offering. But if you were going to enter into this relationship with God, this sacrificial relationship, that's what you did. You didn't have to, but, but it was a voluntary act of devotion on the part of the offerer. God didn't tell Noah, build the altar and give me a burnt offering. He didn't say those words specifically to Abel. He, he invited Abraham to so that Abraham's own faith could be tested before Abraham's eyes. 
But the burnt offering is a voluntary offering of devotion. Note this, the word offering back in verse 2 is korban in the Hebrew, korban. Korban means to present or to bring near. And inherent in the word is that idea that you bring something near because you want to. You, you, you present something because you desire to. And notice this in verse 3, it says, he shall offer it. Who? The offerer. If his offering is an olah from the herd, he shall offer it. The one bringing it. This was an incredibly personal experience. This was not drop off your offering and head to the lake. You know, this isn't just pop in, give the offering, okay, you guys got it, good, I'll be back in my tent, let me know if you need anything. This is, you bring the, all, the offering and you are the one who offers it. You offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You, you bring this animal from the flock, from the herd, and you give the offering. In fact, the one who presented the offering slayed it. And then the priest drained its blood in the appropriate way. And then the offerer skinned it and filleted it. And finally then, the priest offers it up in the fire on the altar. It is completely interactive. This is hands-on, folks. The offerer was involved. Now, by the first century and, and after, in later Judaism at the temple, the priest pretty much took over the process. Interesting how pastors and priests will do that. They'll get in the way and start to take over the process. Look, this is your faith. And I have my faith. And together we believe as a community of believers. But it is not my job to stand in your place. There is one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. And so we even see like in Catholicism where you don't really even take communion anymore. They may put the, the cracker or the bread on your tongue. But the priest drinks the wine. Which is why alcoholism is so big among priests. That there's a, a getting in the way. And, and by the way, people do that with their pastors sometimes too. It's not just the pastor's fault. People will say, oh, I need the pastor to pray for me. Why don't you pray for you? Why don't you get a friend to pray for you? Why don't you get together with brothers and sisters to pray for you? All I'm saying is be involved in your faith. This is your faith. And the offer came and, and they brought it, the, the korban. They, they offered it up. They drew near. That's the idea behind korban, to present, to draw near and in drawing near, it affected the heart of the one drawing near, of the one bringing the offering. And sadly, by the first century, the Pharisees had completely twisted the whole idea of the offering, the korban. Did that word sound familiar to anyone? Mark chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he said, Moses said, fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, that's, that's never a good thing, by the way, to say, Moses said, but you say, when you're out of alignment like that, he said, but you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is given to God. Jesus said, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. You, you've taken the korban, which was about the offerer coming near, drawing near, and you are now withdrawing it from your parents. You're saying, look, I, I'd love to help you, but it's korban. 
And so rather than drawing near to God, they're charging their parents. They're saying, I can't help you out, mom and dad. Can't care for you in your old age. That, you know, I'm just, I'm sorry. I got to give it to the Lord. It's all about the Lord. And it invalidates the whole thing. That's not devotion. That's, that's evasion. The idea of korban, the offering, was to engage the offerer's heart. And so does our giving and our generosity. And I know I've talked about this actually quite a bit lately. It keeps coming up. Can't avoid it when it's in the word. But when we talk about bringing our offering, churches say we're going to take up the offering. Remember one guy saying, you know, I always used to take up the offering and they always made me give it back. <laughs> so churches will take the offering or will have the offering. And it comes from this. It comes from that word korban. Well, the offering is supposed to be about devotion. It's supposed to be something that draws my heart near to the Lord, doesn't close me off, doesn't fill me with guilt or shame or embarrassment. It's, it's about generosity and giving. It has an impact on us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having always all sufficiency in everything, you'll have an abundance. For what, Paul? For every good deed. So the more you're generous, the more God will bless you to be generous. If that's where the heart is. But there's so much more to this than checks and cows. The korban, the offering, it's, it's all about, again, drawing near. To give, to draw near to God. See, that's the heart of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 10, that very familiar verse to us now. Behold, I have come, Jesus said. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. But listen to the last part of the verse. To do your will, O God. See, the more, the more I give of myself to his will, the more I do his will, the more I'm going to desire his will, even over my own, and I become more and more devoted, like the Olah, I become devoted more and more in all things. The more I give, the more I want to give to the Lord, whether it's time, energy, money, resource, doesn't matter. I just want to give to the Lord. And as I do, it increases and increases to the point of what we talked about Sunday morning, self-sacrifice. You get to the point where, like Jesus, you can actually say something like, Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, that's the beauty of Korban, especially with the Olah, the burnt offering, because it's total devotion. Give it all up to the Lord. Now, watch this. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, talking about the Olah, says, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. Why the laying on of hands? Something that we still practice to this day, the laying on of hands. Listen, while the old law was voluntary, it was also substitutionary. That is, the laying on of hands was to say, this is me. This is me. I, I, am, I am offering this offering in my place because honestly, because of my sin nature, I belong on that altar. Because of what I've done, the distance between me and the Father, I deserve to be completely consumed in the fire. So they would lay their hand on the animal, and in so doing, 
transfer, as it were, or substitute the animal for themselves, and the Lord offered them atonement. As we talked about Sunday, covering. The substitutionary covering. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Look at verse 9, again, saying, its entrails, speaking of this offering, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. Why? Because the offering had to be clean. So the intestines would be hand-washed to get any gunk and stuff off of it. And the legs, which would be closest to the ground and would bear a lot of the filth of the animal, the legs would then be washed and then brought back and offered up on the altar so that the offering, the burnt offering, was totally clean. A male without defect, totally clean, offered up on the altar. Pilate said in John 18, verse 38, I find no guilt in him. It's a profound statement. Pilate was speaking of the moment. We understand he spoke, in some ways you could even say prophetically, he spoke of the life of Jesus. There's no guilt here. Matthew 27, verse 4, Judas, after the betrayal, said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, the blood of Christ, sinless, pure, perfect, innocent. And Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 19, you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of of Christ. So the Allah was brought from the herd, but it was also speaking of a lamb brought from the flock. Look at verse 10. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It's a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. So you can bring from the herd a young bull or you can bring from the flock a goat or a sheep. And in Christ's shape or Christ's situation, John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there's an, a strange little caveat to notice here. And that is, if you look back at verse 11, it says, he shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Now, this is just with the sheep. So not apparently with the bull, but with the sheep. The sheep was to be offered, or the goat from the flock was to be offered northward on that side of the altar. Why? It's always the right question as you're studying the Bible. Okay, why, Lord? If you ask why, he's going to tell you why. And in this case, as in every case, nothing in the word of God is accidental. Okay, note that. Be aware of that. As you study through, don't just assume that was a typo or something strange or maybe one of the scribes missed it. Nothing's accidental here. So the offering of the sheep is offered northward. Why? January 17th, 1883... This particular verse of the offering being northward of the altar got the attention of a British general. British general stationed there in Jerusalem. His name was Charles Gordon. And Charles Gordon began to search Jerusalem northward. He, he didn't accept the 
location of the Church of the Holy Smoke, sorry, the Holy Sepulchre, which I've visited, and it's interesting, but it's in a strange location biblically. It doesn't really fit the biblical text. And so he began thinking and looking and, and, and praying and, and researching as he studied the, the offerings, which he knew were cameos of the Christ, and saw that this one is northward. He thought, northward. And he began to search north of the Temple Mount, north of where the altar would have stood, on the, the bronze altar in the courtyard of the Temple on the Temple Mount. He began to head north, and as he did so, he went out the Damascus Gate of Jerusalem north until he discovered a hill that looked like a skull, Golgotha. And you can see it today. And you can compare, even looking at pictures back in 1800, 1873, 1875, right in there, that pictures that were actually taken and then you can compare it to today and contrast. It's, it's remarkable. Skull Hill, Golgotha. It's the only place in that area of Jerusalem that, that can fit. It doesn't fit over where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. It's on the road heading out of Jerusalem, which we know the crosses were placed. Golgotha, Skull Hill. And he thought, okay, well, with that, if we're northward here and there's Golgotha, if that's Golgotha, then that means the tomb has to be nearby. Why? Because the Bible says... In John 19, 41, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And he discovered Golgotha, and Gordon discovered a garden. Complete with wine press and a tomb. And to this day, you can visit what they call Gordon's tomb or the garden tomb. We go there on our tours. Is that the place? Is that the tomb? Is that the actual location? Where Jesus was entombed temporarily? I mean, he rented the place out for the weekend? And the answer is we don't know. Well, why don't you know? Because there's no body. So we can't know where the exact tomb was, but there's likelihood and there's just a sense of that. And so it's, it's one of my favorite places to go that we go to Golgotha. We see Golgotha and then we walk down a path and right there, in the same region, there's a garden, and in the garden, the tomb, and it fits the scriptures beautifully, but it's all because this guy named Gordon went, wait, northward, northward. If it's a sheep, if it's a lamb that's offered, it's to be offered northward, and Jesus was, I believe, offered northward of the altar of the Temple Mount on Skull Hill. Well, verse 14 but if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. And then he shall tear it by its wings but not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. So this burnt offering can be from the herd, it can be from the flock, or it can be from the birdcage. <laughs> Turtle doves or pigeons. And what's beautiful about this is it portrays it, it reveals to us God's kind provision to all of his people. From the most wealthy with many flocks and herds, to the most impoverished with nothing. If you had nothing, you could bring a pigeon. 
you could bring a turtle dove. It was for the poor among Israel. And in fact, we'll see this in Leviticus 12. When a woman gave birth, she was to bring the offering, a, a lamb for a burnt offering to the tent of meeting. She gives birth, and she had to wait through the days of her purification. And we'll study this in Leviticus 12. And at the end of the days of purification, she was to bring a burnt offering to the Lord as, as part of the purification rites of the women of Israel. But Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, tells us something interesting. It says, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Because even the poorest of Israel could bring a turtle dove or a pigeon if they couldn't bring a lamb or a bull. What's so beautiful is that reminds me of a particularly poor young couple around the time of the first century when a little baby boy named Jesus was born. And you can read the story in Luke chapter 2 where Joseph and Mary, they brought two turtle doves. So if you've read that before, you wonder, why, why are they bringing two turtle doves? It wasn't to go with their partridge in a pear tree. It was, it was the offering. They were poor. Get this, Jesus was born into poverty. It wasn't just that Almighty God became a human being by contrast. Not only did he become a human being, but he became a poor human being. Born into a poor carpenter couple family. And living a life of homelessness and poverty. The Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head, he said. Jesus knew poverty. And yet he didn't know want. Because he walked in faith. He walked in trust of his father. But he was impoverished. And it makes all the more powerful Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. So even here in this burnt offering. In the poverty side of the burnt offering. We see Christ in the cameo. Now, continuing on, and there, there are plenty of things in each one of these that you can discover and, and think through, and I encourage you to continue to look over them. But moving on tonight, we go to the, the second offering. And remember, before we get into this one, that Jesus, who said, I am the bread of life, John 6.35, John 6.48, is also the staple, if you will, of the second offering. Chapter 2, verse 1, picks up the grain offering, the mencha. And the mencha is the worship of Jesus. If the burnt offering is that portrait of devotion, the mencha is the portrait of worship, with the worship of Jesus in this second cameo. Verse 1, chapter 2, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from, his hand, it, from it his handful of its fine flour, of its oil, and with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma, there it is again, to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offerings belong to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. A memorial portion. That, that phrase, memorial portion, azkarat, it, it's from the Hebrew word zakar. It means to be mindful of. 
And it translates memorial portion, but don't think about like a memorial, like you go to a memorial service for someone who's passed away. A memorial portion is something that brings to remembrance, which is why I call this a worship offering, because that's what we're talking about. It's to bring to remembrance. It's to bring to mind. It, that's the impact of worship. Even today, worship, our worship is a living memorial that we wander in here on a Sunday morning. We begin to worship and we remember who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, whether in the past week or the past 2,000 years or the past of all history, we remember, we memorialize him. Even we take communion together. It's a memorial, not of one who's dead, but of one who's living, a living memorial. We remember Jesus. This is the beauty, this is the value of our worship that we, we bring him to mind as we worship and, and we keep him in heart. And with this grain offering, and it's literally a grain offering, if your Bible says a meat offering, that's old King James, it's not meat, it's meal or grain. And in this grain offering, they literally would bring a handful of the grain mixed up with, with oil. It can just be like fine flour mixed with oil and incense, and that could be brought, it could be that simple. We'll see there's more to it than that. But keep this in mind that the frankincense that's added on this speaks of his sweetness. The aromatic sweetness of Jesus, as we already talked about, Jesus is the soothing aroma. Jesus is the sweetness. Again, Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a soothing aroma. So there's frankincense on this, on this grain offering. Jesus and his sweetness. And Jesus, secondly, note this, was sifted. Sifted. They were to offer up fine flour. This is not just any flour. This is the word solet in the Hebrew. And solet means sifted grain. Grain that's been through the sieve. Nobody in all history went through the sieve like Jesus did. Nobody was more tested. Nobody was more sifted even at the very outset of his ministry, Mark chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There was a sifting process taking place to see that there might be, if there's anything in him that shouldn't be in him, a sifting. Of course, in the sifting of Jesus, there's no chaff. There's nothing left over. There's nothing that does not belong. There's nothing that's not perfect. There's nothing that's not fine. He is Sifted. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 said, since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Tempted, tested, yes. Fallen, sinful, no. But he went through it. He was sifted. And think about this, the last week of his three-year, three-and-a-half-year ministry, in the lead-up to his crucifixion, think about the sifting process that took place, especially read about it in the Gospel of John. How he was questioned over and over. The lawyers came and the Pharisees came and the Sadducees came and the scribes came. And everybody's questioning him and everybody's challenging him and everybody's sifting him like fine flour. As in the grain offering. Verse 4 says, now when you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be of fine flour, unleavened, mixed 
with oil. So you could bring it either as just the raw flour in this mix, or you could cook it. You could bake it, you could griddle it, you could fry it, you could bring it that way in, in that form as a grain offering. And verse six, you shall break it into bits and pour oil on it, it's a grain offering. Now if your grain offering is a grain offering made in a pan, so pan fried, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. So the frankincense speaks of his sweetness, the, the fine flour that he was sifted, and note this, it's all with oil. Oil mixed into the flour, oil spread on the griddled uh, or, or the fried grain offering, oil, and you Bible students know oil embodies the Holy Spirit. Jesus embodied the Spirit. And I don't mean the word embodied like we often use it. Oh, yeah, he, he just embodies kindness. No, Jesus literally embodied the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit indwelling the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ, was the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, as the Bible teaches us. Isaiah 11, 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Luke 1, 35 gives us the explanation as, as Gabriel spoke to Mary and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Why? Because he's going to embody the Spirit. The Spirit's going to make this happen. By the way, just in case anyone feels like Mary was used or abused, as the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. How did Mary respond to his words? Do you remember? May it be done to your maidservant as you have said. So the Lord sent the angel to say, this is my plan, this is what I'd like to do. And Mary had every opportunity to say no, but she said, may it be done to me as you have said. So she received the will of God, acted in the will of God, and the Holy Spirit came upon her, and the Holy Spirit then conceived Jesus, that is, Jesus was the Spirit embodied in human flesh. So sweetness and sifted and, and spirit, and Jesus, of course, was, as we've been saying, sinless, that is, no leaven. Over and over, we're told, no leaven. This is an unleavened, sifted flour. There's to be no leaven in it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. If, everyone, if anyone has ever called you a lump, just say, yeah, but I'm a new lump, okay? Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Jesus gets in us and he drives the leaven out because he's unleavened, as in the grain offering, which was an unleavened offering. And so we celebrate that example. But look again at verse six. It says, you shall break it into bits and pour oil on it. And it reminds us that Jesus was stricken his body broken, his, his skin pierced. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, and we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, Isaiah 53, 4. So we even see that in the grain offering that Jesus, who is the, the bread come down from heaven, the bread of life, as he claimed, is broken. He, he goes through the sifting. He's, he goes through the heat of being baked literally throughout his life as they came after him. And now his skin broken 
And by the way, broken in multiple places on the cross of Calvary. No wonder Jesus said while they were eating, take this, this is my body, and eat of it. Matthew 26, 26. In verse 8, when you bring in the grain offering which is made of these things to the Lord, it shall be presented to the priest and he shall bring it to the altar. And then the priest shall take up from the grain offering its memorial portion, that memory portion, and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons and the thing most holy of the offerings to the Lord by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. You leave the honey to Pastor Rick. As an offering of first fruits, that's not in there, I think, I hope you caught that. An offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Now, this is interesting. He calls out specifically leaven and honey. We already know this is an unleavened offering. The grain offering would be without leaven. But what's interesting is that the first fruits offerings to the Lord could include leavened loaves. We'll see that in Leviticus 23, 17, that you can bring a leavened loaf of bread as a first fruit offering to the Lord. That was acceptable, but never as part of the grain offering. You could also bring honey. We'll see that happen in 2 Chronicles 31, verse 5, that, they, that honey is one of the things lifted, listed as brought in the first fruits offering, but neither honey nor leaven could be part of the grain offering. Why? Because both honey and leaven cause fermentation. Both have then the suggestion of corruption. Leaven especially is a type of sin in the Bible. And this is where we first start to really understand that leaven portrays sin. That God wants the leaven out. That we clean out the old leaven. And that we come in with the unleavened bread which is Jesus. And so leaven, that picture of sin throughout the scriptures, but honey, it's a little disappointing because I like honey. What's the deal with the honey? You can't bring that with the grain offering because honey breaks down in heat. And I learned this firsthand, a little science experiment for, for a younger version of myself, that I, I, I think I'm sensory sensitive because I don't like to be sticky drives me nuts if I grab the refrigerator door and open it up and pull my hand off and it sticks to the door. I'm like, kids, <laughs> wipe down the door. I just don't like sticky and I don't like honey. And as a kid, as much as I loved honey, I hated getting honey on my hands. Just walk around, sticky. I hated that. Until I realized, man, it washes off faster than anything else in warm water. There's your solution right there. Honey breaks down in heat. When you turn up the heat, honey doesn't last it breaks down it melts away and so that is not Jesus Jesus does not break down in the heat Jesus is not corrupt like the leaven he doesn't just wash away when things get hot when things get tough but you know what's brought what element is brought with the grain offering consistently along with the oil we've talked about not leaven not honey but salt in fact every offering we discover later on is to be salted salt is included why salt does not break down salt preserves salt can handle the heat 
It's funny, I even think about this on our stove at home. We've got our salt and pepper shaker, and toward the, the burner that I use the most, I make sure that the salt is the one closer because I know it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. I need to know that sometimes, that the salt does not break down. Verse 13, note this, every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that, underline this, the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt, the salt of the covenant. Listen, Jesus is sweet. He was sifted. He bears the spirit. He's sinless. He was stricken, and Jesus was salted was salted. This phrase, the salt of the covenant, such a cool phrase. It indicates a covenant that is fresh, always fresh, always preserved, and it will not break down. That Jesus as our salted Savior, one of the few substances, will not break down in heat. The persecutions of Jesus are the salt of the new covenant. The salt of the old covenant was saying, this covenant will not break down. God will not fail you. He will be faithful. But the salt of the new covenant is seen in the very persecutions of Jesus that could not destroy him, could not break him down, could not deter him from his mission, from his focus. The salt of the covenant. And what's beautiful here and why this so applies to you and me right now in 2020, in this tough year, is that we can share in the saltedness. As Jesus said, Mark 9, 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he's referring back again, the Hebrew mind would think, oh, the salt of the covenant, that preserved, protected, non-breaking down substance all the offerings were salted. Live a life that is salted, the Bible would say, with grace. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so Jesus, like the grain offering, was salted. He preserves the new covenant in his blood. And even if I break down, even if you break down, don't be discouraged. For in the heat of our struggles, Jesus keeps the flavor. He is our salted Savior. Verse 14 also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to the Lord, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in the fire, grits of new growth for the grain offering of your early ripened things, and then you shall put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up and smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits and its oil with all its incense as an offering by fire to the Lord. And I'm thinking cream of wheat, malto meal, whatever, your grits, your, 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 your grain offering. But you know what's interesting? You only offer up part of it. If you brought in grain offering of the fine flour with the oil and the frankincense, you give that to the priest, they would take a handful and offer the handful on the fire, the memorial portion. If you brought in a cake 
that was all prepared in that way. They would take a, a piece of it, offer that up on fire, the memorial portion. What about the rest of it? What about the other portion? Go back to verse 3 of chapter 2. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy. That is set apart of the offerings to the Lord by fire. Look at verse 10. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. Look again at verse 16. The priest shall offer up and smoke its memorial portion, part of its grits and oil with all its incense, as an offering by fire to the Lord. You give the memorial, the priest gets the rest. It was part of food for the priest, part of provision for the priest. As the people brought their offering, the priest got to take some. And so the priest, now the priest was the only one who could eat of the grain offering. But think about that. This is daily bread for the priest. And you, my friends, are a royal priesthood. What is our daily bread? The word of God. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. But you know what? It takes on a sweet new meaning because the daily bread is not only the word of God, it is the word of God, capital. It's Jesus himself. He is our daily bread. We come to the word for daily bread. Maybe you even have a little pamphlet. Maybe you get that at home, my daily bread with scriptures and teachings and all that. We come to the word of God, the Bible, but the sweet meaning is we remember Jesus. And as we remember Jesus, we are eating of our daily bread. We are priests eating the daily bread. Jesus the Christ, the grain offering. Cameo number two. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. So fellow priests, don't miss your daily bread. His name is Jesus. Now, cameo number three, chapter three. Chapter three is the peace offering, the shalomim in Hebrew. And the peace offering beautifully portrays the peace that comes of Jesus. And I'm going to save it for Sunday. So we'll come back to chapter three on Sunday. But I want you to remember just this much. That all of these sacrificial offerings, while they prophetically point to Jesus, as we're looking at tonight, they also immediately made a way for God's people, unholy as they naturally were, to draw near to him. To literally be at peace with him. And so the peace offering of the five, I think it's my favorite one, just in, because of the nuances of it. But again, we'll save that for Sunday. Cameo number four. Chapter 4, see how we've already covered three chapters. Chapter 4, cameo number 4, the sin offering. This is a big deal, the hata'ah. This is the one that is the offering of Yom Kippur. But it was also offered at other times, the sin offering. And it speaks of, cameo number 4, the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. 
if he sinned unintentionally. What does that mean? This is a sacrifice. Understand this. The sin offering is a sacrifice for people who really do love God. Okay, we're not talking about people in abject rebellion. We're talking about people who really love the Lord, want to follow the Lord. Perhaps every single one of us here tonight, you really do love God, and yet you find yourself doing the very thing you don't want to do. Unintentional sin. I did it again. How come I keep falling into this? Why do I act this way? This is about unintentional sin. And it's about a sin offering that, that removes that, that, that atones for the unintentional sin. See, the opposite of unintentional sin is shameless, deliberate, rebellious sin. And that's a different deal. To sin brazenly, to sin all up in the face of God, to sin because I can do whatever I want. I don't care what your Bible says. I don't care what your God says. That's not what we're talking about here because that kind of rebellious heart isn't bringing any offering. The sin offering is for people who do love the Lord like you and me, but we still find ourselves from time to time falling into sin. So you bring the sin offering if you're a part of Israel. This offering clearly matters greatly to the Lord because he gives twice as many verses to the sin offering as to any other offering of the five. And while the sin offering is similar in some ways to the burnt offering, it is also very unique. You might note this, looking at the burnt offering versus the sin offering. The burnt offering was completely voluntary. As I said before, you could bring it. The sin offering was required, note this though, of the decided follower. So in a way, you could say the sin offering is still voluntary. You're not going to bring it if you, if you don't love the Lord. But whereas the burnt offering, you could bring any time of yourself voluntarily, the sin offering was required if you sinned before the Lord and you wanted atonement. You had to bring the sin offering. The burnt offering met the demands of his holiness, whereas the sin offering met the desperation of human sinfulness. The demands of his holiness, burnt offering, the desperation of our sinfulness, the sin offering. The burnt offering went all up in smoke. The sin offering was all poured out in blood. The burnt offering points to who Jesus is. The sin offering points to what Jesus did. And that's a very distinct difference, although both are encompassed in Jesus Christ. The sin offering, for its part, for its part deals head-on with the sin nature. I want to ask you tonight, and I, I think I know, I hope I know for you all here gathered what your answer is, but think about this. Do you accept that humanity has a sin nature? Do you believe that we are, in fact, inherently going to sin if left to our own devices? I ask that again because, as I pointed out on Sunday, 75% of American evangelicals reject that. I, I can't even believe that because when I look around at y'all and I think about the Bridge Fellowship, and now that we're the perfect fellowship, we're a bunch of smelly sinners too, but, but when I think about our fellowship, I can't imagine that anyone, having gone through the word here, would think that man is inherently good or that woman is inherently good. I think we know the difference. We better know the difference because I'll tell you something. To state that mankind is inherently good is in essence nullifying the blood of Christ. 
if man is good in nature, we don't need the blood. We're fine. Jesus died for nothing. But see, the Bible says, no, no, all have sinned. All have sinned. There is none righteous. No, not one. In fact, Paul very graphically puts it in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the willing, yeah, that's present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, listen, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, the sin nature. We all have it. It's the disease of humanity. It's what kills. It's far worse than coronavirus, and yet there is a cure, and his name is Jesus. And he is our sin offering. Picking up in verse 5, it says, The anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall note this, dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. That is, he goes into the holy place. And he sprinkles seven times the blood before the veil. And then the priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. That's the altar of incense. And all the blood of the bull he shall then pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So seven times the blood is sprinkled in the holy place. The blood is then put on the horns of the altar of incense. The blood is now is then poured out at the base, all of it poured out at the base of the altar of incense. Brothers and sisters, listen. Get that down. Note that. In fact, you might want to highlight verses six and seven here. Seven times the blood was sprinkled in the holy place. And Again, it was dabbed on the horns of the altar of incense. And it was poured out at the base of the brazen altar. Yeah, yeah, Rick, we got it. Listen, Jesus bled on the cross from seven places. His two hands, his two feet, his brow, his back, and ultimately his side. Sprinkled the blood seven times. Jesus bled out from seven places. John 19, 34 says ultimately one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. John saw it. John said in 1 John 5, 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. What are you saying, John? He was dead. His heart was burst. That's why he would see water flow out at the same time as the blood. And John testified to the death of Jesus, the Finishing sacrifice on the cross as Jesus bled from seven places. But it's not just that. Jesus also prayed through the blood. So you would dab the blood on the altar of incense, the place of prayer. Jesus from the cross prayed through the blood, blood in his eyes, blood on his brow saying, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. And ultimately Jesus' blood was poured out at the base of the cross, that brazen cross. Verse eight. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat which is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them which is on the loins and the lobe of the liver which he shall remove with the kidneys just as it is also removed 
from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offering. So I'm going to come back to that Sunday. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. Verse 10, verse 11. But the hide of the bull, and here's different, and all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrail and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. It shall be burned. Now note this, none of the sin offering was to be eaten. In fact, there's only one offering really and the grain offering was eaten by the priest. There was only one offering that was in, involved or was eaten by the offerer. And again, that's Sunday. That's the peace offering. But with the sin offering, none of it was eaten. All of the fat portions that were listed here burned up on the altar, while the rest of the bull that was offered, that is the good meat and the head and the legs and all, was taken outside the camp and burned up just like Jesus. Hebrews 13, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. He's talking about the sin offering. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate, outside the camp. That is Golgotha. The place of the cross is outside of the gate of Jerusalem, northward, as we said, at Skull Hill. And Jesus, like the sin offering, was offered. God knew this. It's so amazing. God says, I want you to take of the sin offering and burn it outside the camp. Why? Because that's where the sacrifice is going to happen. That's where the sacrifice that takes away your sin will take place outside the camp of Jerusalem. So they took him out. And notice what the Hebrew pastor says, Hebrews 13, 13. It is a huge verse. So let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. What does that mean? We go out bearing his reproach. Does that mean we suffer like him? Well, you could make that illusion, but I think it's bigger. We go outside the camp, like the sin offering outside the camp, we go out bearing his reproach. That is, we go out carrying the gospel. We go outside the camp. We take the gospel of our salvation. We bear the reproach of Christ. That is the gospel. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.10, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Why do you keep inviting me to church? What is all this Christianity really about? Jesus died for you. Jesus substituted himself for you. Jesus was burnt up on the altar, as it were, for you outside the camp. We bear his reproach outside the camp. You could look at it this way, that we're kind of in the camp right now. We celebrate Jesus in this place. We remember, we, by memorial, remember Jesus in this place. But we bear his reproach outside the camp. We take the gospel with us as we go. Away from church buildings and religious comfort zones and ritual. No, we go outside and that's where we talk about. We bear the very reproach of Jesus. And sometimes you'll be reproached for mentioning him. It's okay. But the reproach of Jesus is that offering, the sin offering that is Jesus Christ. Well, for the rest of chapter 4, 
the sin offering is repeated for the unintentional sins of specified groups of people. Verses 13 down through verse 21, and I'm not going to read it right now, is a bull for the sin of the congregation. So it's repeated, but now this is specifically the Lord saying, for the congregation you can bring a sin offering. If the whole congregation sins, well, when does a whole congregation sin? Golden calf, for one. And trust me, we'll see many times when the whole congregation of Israel sins together. So a bull for the whole congregation. Verses 22 on down through verse 26 is you are to bring a goat for the sin of a leader of Israel. Someone who's in charge. They sin. Maybe the congregation doesn't follow suit, but you've got a leader who's in sin. He didn't really mean to, but he realizes he did, and he's fallen into it, and so he has a sin offering, a goat, verses 22 through 26. And then verses 27 through 35, a goat for the sin of the common man. Anyone who sins, anyone who finds that they have fallen into error and failure can bring a goat of the sin offering. But note this. It's actually where I started at the very beginning tonight. We begin to hear something beautiful here in chapter 4. We're going to hear it nine times all the way through chapter 6. In chapter 4, verse 20, I'll read it to you again. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Verse 26, the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven forgiven. Verse 31, the priest shall make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. Verse 35, thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed and he will be forgiven. Forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. We're going to hear it in chapter 5, verse 10, 13, 16, 18, and finally in chapter 6, verse 7, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Forgiveness has always been in the heart of God. The Old Testament God, the New Testament God, same God. Forgiveness has always been his desire. To forgive you, forgive me, make life right. And all of this is about pointing the way. These offerings, and these offerings brought immediate forgiveness with the atonement, with the covering. The sin that was still a blemish, still there, but, but God said, I'm going to forgive you anyway. And acted in that forgiveness for his people. But all of these offerings, bringing this forgiveness, these five offerings, point the way to the final finished work of the eradication of sin, complete and utter and total forgiveness, and you sit in that tonight. That's where we are, in the place of absolute forgiveness. It brings me to the last offering. Cameo number five, Leviticus chapter five, the guilt offering. In Hebrew, the asham and this speaks of, and I didn't really get into this a lot on Sunday, so pay attention. This speaks of the reparations of Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he's a witness, whether he is seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell, then he will bear his guilt. God expected his people to tell the truth. You got a court case? You don't cover yourself. You don't lie for somebody else. You say what is true you speak the truth you don't fudge it verse 2 if a person touches any unclean thing whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean cattle or the carcass of unclean swarming things 
Though it's hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort his uncleanness may be with which he becomes unclean and it's hidden from him, that is, he doesn't even know it, and he comes to know, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly, I know no one in here has ever done that, with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and see this kind of swearing, we're not talking about a curse word here. We're talking about promising to do something and you didn't do it. And you realize afterwards, I swore on an oath and I did not follow through. Oy vey, guess what? Even if it was hidden from you and he comes to know it, verse four, he will be guilty in one of these. Verse five, so it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. Confession is not a New Testament idea. It's been around a long time. He shall confess, verse six, and he shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. Note that in these sins that are listed here, they are all, every one, sins of compromise. They're sins committed, not intentionally, because note he keeps saying, because it's hidden to him. He did it, he didn't realize it, and then it becomes known, he's like, oh man, you're right, I did sin. Didn't know it at the time, sins of Compromise. You could call them sins of slippage <laughs> because it's sinning without realizing it because we walk too close to the fence. Because we're playing both sides. We're trying to walk up the middle. We're trying to see how close to sin we can get. I can handle it. That's, that's the sin that's unintentional. That's the sin that's hidden from me. I can handle it. I got it. No problem. I can be in that place. I can be around those people. I can take in that information. Not a big deal. And we bend so near to transgression that before we even know it, we're sinning. And that's what the guilt offering is for. And Paul refers to this concept when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Tell you what, you got a, a sin area in your life somewhere that you have sinned in the past and you know it's a weakness of yours, you stay away from that. You don't go near it. You don't think, well, it's been a long time since I've committed that sin. I'm good now. Don't go there. Don't even go near because in our going near, we slip. And in our going near, we end up sinning and we don't even realize it. And so he says, you got to bring a guilt offering for this. But note this, in verse 6, it continues saying, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. Let's be clear. Now we're talking about a sin offering. He listed these sins, unintentional, hidden sins that become known, and you, and you, have, you suffer guilt for it. So you got to bring the guilt offering. But suddenly, he shifts gears and he's back to the sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him on behalf for his sin. That's a sin offering. Verse 7. If he cannot afford a lamb, he shall bring to the Lord his, for his guilt offering. His guilt offering he shall bring for that in which he has sinned. Two turtle doves or two young pigeons. But note this. One is for a sin offering and the other is for a burnt offering. Where's the guilt offering? Verse 8. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first that which is for the sin offering and shall nip its head at the front of its neck, but he shall not sever it, and he shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Where's the guilt offering? Verse 10. The second he shall then prepare as a 
burnt offering according to the ordinance. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed and it will be forgiven him. So that's the forgiveness of the sin offering. But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then for his offering for that which he has sinned, he shall bring the tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. Look, I want you to be covered. I want your sin forgiven. And if you can't bring this, at least bring this. Come in the place of confession. Bring what you can bring. You're impoverished. Bring what you got. Bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. Man, God, God is going to the most impoverished of Israel. If you can get your hands on some fine flour, do that and bring that for your sin offering. And then he says, he shall take it to the priest, verse 12. And the priest shall take his handful of it with its memorial portion and offer it up in smoke on the, on the altar with the offerings of the Lord by fire. It is a sin offering. Verse 13, so the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin which he has committed from one of these and it will be forgiven him and the rest shall become the priests like the grain offering. Wait. <laughs> so is it a sin offering or a burnt offering or a guilt offering? Now let's just be really clear here. The guilt offering which we are yet to see always follows the sin offering. It comes after confession, repentance, forgiveness comes first and then the guilt offering. Then we deal with the guilt. Then reparations are made. Stay with me. The burnt and the sin offerings were for recognizing, for confessing, for being forgiven of sin. Only then could you bring the asham. Only then was the guilt offering in play. And now, verse 14, the Lord speaks to Moses saying, If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, he shall then bring his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation in silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. I know that's as clear as mud. Stay with me. He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing, and he shall add to it a fifth part of it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. So now this is about making restitution. And there's a ram that's brought, and there's this, this idea of the valuation of silver. So you got to bring some shekels mixed in here as well. The word restitution now comes into play. You know, I was thinking about this on Sunday. I mentioned how, how do we get guilt dealt with in our lives. And one of the easiest ways to deal with guilt is payback. You know, if, if I've wronged someone, if I can, you know, I forget Cheryl's birthday. Haven't done it, but let's just say, for example, I forget Cheryl's birthday, and I feel so guilty, and she wakes up that morning, and there's no birthday card, and there's no happy birthday, and nothing happened all day long, and that night as we're falling asleep, she says, well, it's my birthday today, and I feel so guilty. What do I do? First thing in the morning, I'm buying flowers because it makes the guilt go away. I'm going to do something. I'm going to make reparations. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's an act. There's something, and God knows this in the human heart, that if we sin and we're guilty about it, that there is actually something we can do. We can 
attempt to make reparations for it. And that's the guilt offering. And the reparations here, if you sin against the law, note he said in verse 14, against the Lord's holy things. So you do something religiously against the Lord or some violation of the law of the Lord, then it's not a violation against another person. It's against God. And the guilt offering, then what you do is that you bring the offering and you bring a double tithe. You add a fifth. That is, you bring 20% rather than 10%. If you sin against another person, again, inadvertently or not, you didn't mean to, but you realize that you did, and to bring a guilt offering, you would bring the offering, and then to make it right, you'd repay their loss and add 20%. I sideswiped Connie's car. Let's get the car fixed, but I'm going to, I'm going to put 20% of the cost of getting it fixed on top of that and give that to her. That's my guilt offering. And you know what? It starts to help me feel a little bit better about the sin that I committed against my sister. And that's the idea that the guilt offering was to assuage the guilt. And it was something that the offerer could do to offer the double tithe to the Lord or the extra 20% on top to repay the loss and add to it. But note this. And with the guilt offering, then you bring a ram. Why? Why a ram? Well, because a ram is the earliest recorded uh, sacrifice in the Bible that points us directly to Jesus Christ. Genesis 22, verse 13, there on Mount Moriah, Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And on that spot, Jesus was crucified. Do you think Isaac ever looked at a ram the same way again? After that ram was offered in his stead? You think when he was old enough to drive and he went out and bought a ram truck that he ever looked at it the same way? For Isaac to see a ram was to see salvation, was to see rescue. And in this same place, on this same mountain, in the same location, God provided his only son whom he loved, Jesus, to forever remove all of our sin and guilt and shame. And in our sinning, unknown or unknown, here's the thing, and here's the only problem in making a comparison to the guilt offering. We can't make restitution. We can't make reparation. For our sin to the Lord? No way, my friends. We can never make restitution for our sin because we are beyond broke. And that is the beauty of this holy bloody book of Leviticus. Five sacrifices. Five sacrifices, five offerings. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering because it takes all five offerings to fully express the grace of God in one man. And that is Jesus. 
So in verse 17, it says, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty, he shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation, for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error, in which he sinned unintentionally. He didn't mean to, he didn't want to, but he did. And he didn't know at the time, but then he became known. It will be forgiven him. It's a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 6, verse 1. When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted or through robbery. Of course, I don't know how you commit robbery and not know it. Or if he is extorted from his companion or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do. Then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he had found or anything about which he swore falsely. He shall make restitution for it in full and add to it a fifth more, 20%. And he shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering, reparations. And he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram, without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. And note this, the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. And Jesus is all of this, all five offerings. And you got to have all five. Why? Because there are so many ways of looking at the sacrifice of Jesus. There are so many ways to express and explain it. And God lays out all five, five again, the number of grace in the Bible. He lays out all five, all pointing in one direction to one man, to Jesus. And listen to this singular verse, and we'll end on this tonight. Hebrews 10, 14, it's never meant so much to me before in my life. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We don't need five. We have one, and his name is Jesus. Lost at Leviticus, but he found me in the blood. Amen? Jesus, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you for the, the graphic depictions and these sacrifices and the beauty of them. Thank you, Father, simply for the well, wherewithal of my brothers and sisters to wander through this with me. Lord, we recognize even for that which we may have missed that you began with these offerings to show us Jesus. And Lord Jesus, by your one offering, we will forever praise your name. We are saved, we are cleansed, we are washed. We, Father, are, are guilt-free because while we couldn't make reparations, Lord Jesus, you did. You did it all our one offering. Thank you, Lord. We bless your name. We praise your name. And in Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.